The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I do invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 if you haven't done so yet. Um, In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Chronicles of Narnia, which, by the way, is the first book you should read in the series. That is publication order, which is the only correct order to read the series in. As I was so wonderfully reminded uh, by our dear sister Christy in a sermon of hers I heard earlier this week, last week. When C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, you enter into this fantastical land of Narnia, and all of it lies underneath this curse cast by the White Witch, a curse of eternal winter, always winter and never Christmas. But Aslan, who is the lion, that's this, this Christ-like figure, Aslan, the rightful ruler of Narnia, he is coming to reclaim his kingdom, and throughout the story, as he gets closer, winter begins melting. I read this to my oldest three kids for the first time a couple of months ago, and even amidst the, the ice and the snow of the witch's power, I could see the joy of my kids grow every time I, I read about a new flower sprouting or a new icicle melting. Their joy would just increase, increase, no matter how prevalent the witch's power seemed. And then when Aslan finally showed up, their hearts were near about to burst with with joy. But if you know the story, you know that just as suddenly as he appears, Aslan dies. And I watched as my kids' joy died with him. Like once he had filled them with joy, even amidst the witch's winter, now in the story, like the future seems so uncertain. It seemed hopeless and they felt so helpless. Death had brought joy to an end. And they're left asking right there in the middle of the story, will joy win? How how could joy win? I'm willing to bet that the Philippians had similar questions for Paul. Like if you remember, if you were with us last week, if not, you'll have to listen to the podcast to catch all the way up. But last week, just briefly, we saw Paul showing them his joy in action right in the midst of his present circumstances and conditions. He was facing opposition from outside the church, affliction from within the church. As Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he sits in the midst of prison. Rival preachers are opposing him. And yet, He wants Philippi and us to see that he has joy in action. Like my children, having joy even amidst the white witch's ice and snow, Paul reinterpreted his life through the lens of the glory of Christ. And he saw how everything that was happening to him in his imprisonment was actually serving to glorify Jesus. And Jesus is Paul's joy. So when Jesus is glorified, Paul's joy is magnified. You need to equate those two things when we talk about Paul. If I talk about Jesus being glorified just here, Paul's rejoicing. If I talk about Paul rejoicing just here, Jesus is being glorified. 
Like for Paul, joy was bursting forth amidst his opposition, like, like new Narnian flowers amid melting icicles. And in Paul, Philippi saw, and we saw, how to reinterpret our lives through the lens of the glory of Christ. But, Philippi is not merely concerned about Paul's presence. Paul, how are you doing in prison? How can you reinterpret that in light of the glory of Christ? They're concerned about that, but not just that. They are also concerned about Paul's future. They know that his imprisonment could conclude with his execution. Like death looms large on the horizon. And if Paul dies, won't his joy just die with him? Like he may have shown them how to reinterpret the present, but what hope could he offer them for the future? Paul's future looks so uncertain. So does Philippi's, by the way. Remember, they're facing their own set of opposition and affliction. Like everything seems so uncertain, so hopeless, and they all look so helpless. What good is joy in the present if the future brings it all to an end? And i got to imagine that Philippi's left asking, will joy win? How could joy win? For Paul. For Philippi, for us, like, let's, let's be honest, Shades. Does the future of our world not seem incredibly uncertain? Does, does the daily news not often make us feel hopeless? And do we, the church, not often feel helpless like how can we look at an uncertain future and still be a people of joy will joy win how can joy win in us i believe that paul aims to answer both of these questions for us and philippi by showing us how joy wins in So, let's see Paul tackle both of these questions. Will joy win? How can it win? Let's see him tackle those questions one at a time. First, will joy win? Paul gives us his answer to this question rather quickly and clearly at the end of verse 18. Paul simply says, yes, and I will rejoice. Future tense. Yes, and I will rejoice. If you go back a little bit, you'll see that Paul has just finished telling us how he reinterprets everything that's happening to him in the present through the lens of the glory of Christ, through his imprisonment. He sees multiple ways Christ is being glorified and Jesus is his joy. So as Jesus is glorified, Paul's joy is magnified. Yes, I can rejoice in the present. That's what the yes means. Yes, I can rejoice in the present and I will rejoice. Paul pivots, like from looking at the present toward looking at the future and confidently declares, I will rejoice. In other words, joy will win. How do you know that, Paul? He must know something that we don't. Because honestly, Paul, it looks, it just kind of looks like you might get executed here. How do you know joy will win? Look at verse 19. For I know, haha, 
he knows something. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Oh, okay. I get it now. Paul is able to rejoice because he knows that God is going to rescue him from prison and death. That's how joy is going to win. This is how most of us think of joy winning. And so Paul can confidently say, I will rejoice. Is that what he means? I mean, if you read the rest of the passage, it clearly sounds like that's not what he knows. He's like, live or die. I mean, these things are kind of up in the air. All throughout this letter, these things will be up in the air for him. That's, that's not what he means at all. The Greek word that's used here for deliverance is soterion. It is most commonly translated as salvation. I know this will turn out for my salvation. Paul constantly uses that word, soterion, to refer to final salvation on the last day when we stand before God. When I stand before God on the last day, I will be acquitted and I will be saved fully and finally. And I know that's how Paul is using it here because his phrase, I know this will turn out for my salvation, it's a direct quote from the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's a direct quote from Job chapter 16 where Job says the same thing, I know this will turn out for my salvation. You remember Job's story? Job is in the midst of incredible suffering, and he has no clue how it's going to end as far as his life goes. Live, die, he doesn't know. But this is what Job does know. When I stand before God, I will be acquitted. I'll be right. I will be fully and finally saved. This is what Paul means. In other words, Paul is not saying right here that he knows precisely how his imprisonment is going to play out. No, that future he cannot see. But he's saying no matter how it plays out, it won't result in him being ashamed at the final judgment because he has a future that's guaranteed. He is going to be empowered through their prayers and by the Spirit of Jesus. We'll talk more about that later, maybe next week. He's going to be empowered to glorify Jesus either way, no matter what happens, live or die. That's guaranteed. That's what he knows. He says that explicitly in the next verse. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored, made big, quite literally, glorified, magnified, Christ will be glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to live or I'm going to die, but this is what I do know. Christ will be glorified in my body either way. And Jesus is my joy. So when Jesus is glorified, my joy is magnified. Joy wins. You see Paul's logic. It doesn't matter if I live or I die, how this turns out, joy wins. If I live out my days in prison, Paul says, joy wins. If I die, Paul says, joy wins. 
I know that's how Paul will always answer the question, will joy win? Because he says, no matter what, Christ will be glorified. Joy winning is his eager expectation and hope. This is what I'm looking forward to. That phrase he uses, this is my eager expectation, hope that Christ is going to be glorified no matter what. And when Christ is glorified, my joy is magnified, joy wins. When he says, that's my eager expectation, he's not saying that's my wish on a wing and a hope and a prayer. Now, the Greek phrase here for eager expectation, it carries the sense of watching for something you know is coming. Like, like it's kind of like when you give a gift to somebody, maybe at Christmas, and you're watching them open it, like you have an eager expectation of the joy that's about to erupt because you know what's coming. You know what's in the box. And right here, Paul says, I don't care if I'm opening the gift box of life or the gift box of death. I know what's coming. Christ glorified. That's his eager expectation. And he says, that is my hope. Again, he doesn't mean this the way that we most commonly use the word hope. Don't hear the word hope the way we use it to express an uncertainty. I hope my team wins. I know that didn't happen for a lot of you yesterday. I'm sorry, I've been praying for you all. But that's not the way that Scripture uses the word hope. No, biblical hope is not the expression of an uncertainty. It's the expectation of a guarantee. Biblical hope is not the expression of an uncertainty. It's the expectation of a guarantee. Paul's hope, what he knows is guaranteed, is not whether he will live or die, but that either way Christ will be glorified. And Jesus is Paul's joy. So when Christ is glorified, his joy is magnified, his joy wins. Paul can look at an uncertain future and say with absolute certainty, I will rejoice. Joy wins. And and Paul wants Philippi and us to be able to do the same. Like no matter what opposition or affliction we face, no matter what comes our way, live or die, Christ will be glorified and that's our joy, so joy wins. Shades, do we believe this? Do we believe that joy wins no matter what happens? Do do we believe That joy wins so that amidst an uncertain future, we can say with certainty, we will rejoice. This is the joy that Philippians presents to us that's different in this world. This world only knows joy that's flippant and flimsy, dependent completely upon the circumstances that surround it. We know a joy that is a firm foundation that no circumstance can shake. Because in any circumstance, even life and death, Christ can be glorified and that's our joy. So we can say with certainty, we will rejoice. Can we look at an uncertain future and say with certainty, we will rejoice? So that no matter what the news says, our response is we will rejoice. 
not with a flippant joy that slaps on a smile in the face of a suffering world, but with a deep joy that cannot be shaken by suffering because we know with certainty that God is working all things together for our good, the glory of his son, Jesus. That's our joy and it wins. So no matter what the news says, can we say we will rejoice? No matter who wins an election in 2020, can we say we will rejoice? Is that the vibe that people get from our Facebook feeds? We will rejoice that our joy is not dependent upon who holds the office of president, but it is dependent upon the one who presides over the world. That's how Paul feels right here. Quite literally. I don't have to stretch for that application. Paul's basically saying Caesar can do whatever he wants to do with me. Release me, kill me, doesn't matter. I know the one who presides over all of history, including Caesar. Christ will be glorified either way. That's Paul's joy. Joy wins. Change no matter what the rulers of this world do, the ruler of this world will be glorified. And his glory is our joy, so joy wins. No matter who wins an election, can we say, we will rejoice. No matter what health diagnosis I get, we say, we will rejoice. Nope. No matter what happens in my relationships or with my marriage or with my singleness or with my kids or with my career, no matter the opposition, no matter the affliction, no matter if I find myself opening the gift box of life or death, I say, we will rejoice because Christ will be glorified no matter what comes our way. We eagerly expect and hope in that guarantee that Christ will be glorified. And that's our joy. So joy wins. Will joy win? Paul answers emphatically, resoundingly, and only yes. Awesome. How? That's my second question. Paul says joy is going to win, and he's given us kind of like a meta picture of it, right? Here's how joy is going to win. Christ is going to be glorified no matter what. Jesus being glorified, that's our joy, so joy wins. Okay, that's a big picture, but bring that down into the nitty-gritty practical realities of life for me, Paul. Show me. You, you've said he's glorified. Your joy wins. Whether you live, show me what that looks like. Whether you die, show me what that looks like. How... Is joy going to win? Paul answers that question for us rather quickly and clearly in verse 21. For. It's a connecting word. Connects us right back to the immediately preceding verse. Verse 20. Where he said Christ is going to be glorified whether by life or by death. Now let me tell you how. For. Here's how that's going to happen. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The Greek punches you in the gut even more. It's more terse. If we just literally translated it, Paul says, for me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. There's not even any verbs to get in the way. To live, Christ, to die, gain. Paul says, you want to know how Christ will be glorified? 
You want to know how joy wins, whether I live or die? Here's how. Joy wins by treasuring Christ in life. To live is Christ. To treasure him in life more than anything. And joy wins by treasuring Christ more than life. To die is gain. Paul unpacks these for us one at a time, so let's do the same. First one right here. How does joy win? Joy wins by treasuring Christ in life. For me to live is Christ. Paul says, this isn't the only time that he says this in his writings. Just read Galatians 2.20 or Colossians 3.4. Paul again and again says something along the lines of Christ is life. I had this shirt when I was a teenager that said basketball is life. Y'all remember these shirts? You could get them that said anything, right? And, and, and what that meant is like this this is my thing. Like, this is where I get all my meaning, all my joy, all my, my value. What a depressing series of shirts. Basketball is life. Come on, teenage Jonathan. Paul was saying something similar, but something so much deeper, so much richer. Christ. It's where I get all my meaning, all my value, everything. Everything else just, just is meaningless without Him. Christ is, is life. I think, I think that in Philippians chapter 3, we really see what Paul means by this phrase, Christ is life. Because what he does in Philippians chapter 3 is he lays out everything he wants valued in life. Everything that would have been on Paul's t-shirt. You know, being a Jew is life. Being a Pharisee is life. Being the best Pharisee is life. Circumcision is life. That would have been really awkward to wear to parties. <laughs> but he like lays out everything that he wants valued in life. But then when he gets to chapter 3 and verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Christ is life. The worth of knowing Him surpasses everything else. He is the treasure of my life. This is where I'm getting the word treasure. He's of surpassing worth. He's the greatest treasure Everything else, Paul says, is loss compared to him. Take it. Take it whatever you will. Let's play a comparison game. Here's Christ. Give me something to set next to him. Go. Something the world values. Let's do this. Money. Loss. Try again. Power. Loss. Try again. What? Education. Loss. We could do this all day. I am praying for that man's soul back there. I try to stay the totally not part. That is more inflammatory than politics, Brad. Jeez. She's throwing me out there. Anyway, okay, sorry. All right. What were you talking about? We were talking about Christ as life. 
And the worth of knowing him surpasses absolutely everything else. He's the treasure of my life. You, you take whatever, feasting, drinking, beauty, riches, fame. Paul says all of those are lost, set next to Christ. Because all of those things, with all their glory and all the joy that it brings, will pass away. Death will bring an end to every one of those joys. But Christ has been to the grave and got back up again. He brings a joy that never ends. When we treasure Him, joy wins. In fact, all of the little joys of this life, they are meant simply to be pointers to us, pointers for us to, to Him. Feasting that can never actually permanently satisfy the hunger of your stomach, it points to the bread of life who can forever satisfy the hunger of your soul. Drink that can never forever slake the thirst of your throat, it, it, it points you to the living water who can eternally quench the longings of your parched heart. His beauty never fades. His riches never rot. And the fame of His glory has no end. When you treasure Him, joy wins. To live is Christ. To know Him as the treasure of your life. But that's not all. Paul explains further in the beginning of verse 22. Look at it. He talks about what it means to live as Christ. He says in verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, so if we go that route, that means fruitful labor for me. If you look down at verse 25, or in fact all throughout the letters of Paul, but specifically in verse 25, it makes clear that Paul's fruitful labor is helping others to know joy in Jesus like he does. That's why he's ultimately going to say he wants to hang around for the Philippians, for their progress and joy in the faith. That's fruitful labor for, for him. What does Paul mean by Christ is life? Knowing Jesus as his joy, yes, and making joy in Jesus known. This, this is how he treasures Christ in life. All of his life is pointed at this. He's going to say it in chapter 3. I want to know Christ. Even if that means suffering in the fellowship of his sufferings. Even if it means becoming like him in his death. I want to know Christ. And he wants to use every last breath to make joy in Christ known. That's how he treasures Christ in life. And this is how joy wins. Because Paul knows no greater joy in life than this. Christ, how, how would you finish Paul's sentence? To live is fill in the blank. Like if you examine your, your life, how, how are you feel, filling in that, that blank? To, to live is to raise good kids or to live is to get married or to live is to have a successful career, to live is money, fame, health, political power, influence. All of these joys end in death. They lose. But to live is Christ. The one to whom all the little joys of this life are meant to point you towards. Like, like 
C.S. Lewis would put it this way, all the joys of this life are like sunbeams meant to lead you back up to the sun. Every little joy that you taste is just a foretaste of what you were created to experience in Christ. I believe that is why God created everything the way he created it. I believe that's why he created us to feel hunger. So we would have the capacity to somehow know what it would mean for him to satisfy our soul. I think that's why he created us with the capacity to have the relationships that we have with fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters so we would somehow be able to have an inkling of what it's like for him to call us brother, for us to call God the Father, Father. All of these little joys are meant to lead you to treasure Christ. When you treasure Christ above all else in life, Jesus is glorified. And when Jesus is glorified, our joy is magnified. Joy wins. This is how joy wins. By treasuring Christ in life. And you might say, okay, Paul, I see how that works. But you said that joy wins if you live or if you die. How how does that work? How, how does joy win even in death? This is the second thing we need to see. Joy wins by treasuring Christ more than life. We've said joy wins by treasuring Christ in life. The second answer to how does joy win? Joy wins by treasuring Christ more than life. Paul's words right here just cut to the quick on this one, don't they? To die, gain. Debatably the most confusing sentence to anyone on the face of this planet. Like, what does he mean? To die is is gain. I think, I think when people first read Paul's words right here, to die is gain. I think our first instinct is to start thinking about all of the suffering that Paul endured in his life. I mean, even when he writes this letter, we know he's sitting in jail. We know he went through so many beatings. He was shipwrecked. He was exposed to elements. He had so much suffering. And so I think we we look at that and we think, well, I mean, wouldn't death be gained because it would bring an end to all of his suffering? And we could say that, but that isn't what Paul says. In fact, in the weeks to come, we're going to see him actually say that suffering is a gift from God. I've already told you in chapter 3 that he talks about being willing to know Christ, to fellowship with him in his sufferings. Throughout this letter and throughout many of his other letters, he rejoices in his sufferings because through his suffering, he says, I know more of Christ. My suffering makes me depend more upon the power of Christ. And so I learn more of him. I know more of him. He gives me more of himself. Like Paul's ultimate motivation here is not to get out of suffering. He's okay with suffering because it gets him more of Jesus. That's what Paul always wants, more of Jesus, and that's what he wants in death. Not to get out of suffering, but to get more of the one who has conquered suffering. He explicitly says that at the end of verse 23. Look at the end of verse 23. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. 
Not to depart and get out of this life that's hard and terrible. No, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That, that is far better. Far better. Death is gain because it gets me something. No, no, because it gets me someone far better than anything this world has to offer. It gets me fully into the presence of Christ. When Paul calls death gain, okay, this is not a statement of depression for him. I'm depressed and I just want to die and get this over with. I've heard people come to this text to try to justify such notions. This is not a statement of depression for Paul. This is a statement of joy. This isn't thoughts of suicide. It's thoughts of salvation. This is not a longing for death, but for the one who has defeated it. Paul treasures Christ even more than life itself, and that glorifies Christ. It shows his worth to the world that Jesus is far better. Is, is he far better to you? T- to me. I mean, we just said just a second ago that we could take anything in this world, set it next to Christ, and, and call it lost. Can we really say that he is? far better. Shades, I got five kids. I would love to see all of them grow up. Christ is far better. I'd love to see my grandkids one day. Christ is far better. Love to grow old with Holly. Christ is far better. Love to be your pastor for the next 33 years. Not that I'm counting. Christ is far better. Far better. Paul's words here, to die is gain, will never make sense unless you can first say about everything, Christ is far better. That's the only way you can say death is gain. This world doesn't view death as gain. It views death as a loss. In death, I lose everything that's of value. Death takes it all away. It's not gain, Paul. Like, don't you feel death's sting? How it takes everything away? And Paul says, no, I don't, because death's sting has been dealt with by my king, Jesus. He took death itself on a cross, wrestled it down into the grave where he buried its sting, and three days later he rose as a victorious king over all. Death cannot take anything from me because it merely delivers me into the presence of my king. Where Psalm 16:11 has promised me there is fullness of joy forevermore. Death takes nothing from me. My king has defeated death. And one day he has promised me that he will complete the reversal which his resurrection began. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia calls it, he says it like this, it's like everything untrue, everything evil is coming untrue. You know, when I, when I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my kids, 
And we came to that part I told you about where Aslan died and it was like their joy died with him. My joy didn't die at that moment. I still had joy because I had an expectation and a hope. A guarantee that death would be defeated. And if you don't know the story, spoiler alert, when Aslan, the Christ-like lion, rose from the dead, so did my kids' joy. And nothing could kill their joy for the rest of the story. Like, I tried. I tried not to kill my kids' joy. I tried to, to keep the suspense alive, right? And make the rest of the story suspense. I, t- I told them, like, you know, the witch is still alive, right? You know, there's still a battle to be fought, right? You know that that characters could still die, right? But they were convinced that because the worst had been reversed, so would the rest of the curse. Shades, the true lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has risen. The worst has been reversed, and so will the rest of the curse. We, we, We don't need to live as if the lion is dead. To live is Christ, to die is gain, speaks the truth that the lion lives. The lion of the tribe of Judah has risen, the worst has been reversed, and so will the rest of the curse. Shades, the enemy may still live, and there still may be many battles left to fight, but it is my eager expectation and hope that that joy will win because we know Christ has already won. Joy will win because Christ has already won. So we treasure Him in life. To live is Christ. By this, He's glorified in our lives. And when Christ is glorified, our joy is magnified. Joy wins by treasuring Christ in life. And we treasure Christ in death. To die is gain. By this, He's glorified, shown to me worth more than life itself. And when Christ is glorified, our joy is magnified. Joy wins by treasuring Christ more than life. Joy wins no matter what comes our way because Christ has already won. And one day, He will usher in His complete and final victory. So, Shades, we can be a people who look toward an uncertain future and declare with absolute certainty, we will rejoice. We will rejoice. Joy wins because Jesus has already won. And Jesus is our joy.